All opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the official views of the College Democrats of NYU, the Democratic Party, or any organization. All voices remain vital to our democracy. This podcast was recorded at 6.38 p.m. on Wednesday, April 18th. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Hey, Raven, what time did you say it is? It's Fighting Words time. Hello and welcome to Fighting Words, the official podcast of the NYU College Democrats. I'm your host, Raven Quesenberry. And I'm your other host, Ryan Trembauer. Before jumping into this week's news, we would like to extend our thoughts and prayers to the family of former First Lady Barbara Bush, who passed away on Monday at the age of 92. She was only one of two women in American history to be both a wife and a mother of a United States president. Thank you for your words, Ryan. And with that, let's jump into the news. In our very first episode, we covered the ongoing battle in the New York State Supreme Court between a group of public housing tenants and the New York City Housing Authority, otherwise known as NYCHA. On April 17th, Manhattan Judge Carol Edmead ordered NYCHA to conduct lead inspections in the thousands of apartments which currently house children. This comes after a months-long trial, which began in November after it was revealed that NYCHA falsified mandatory lead inspections. However, this legal battle is far from over, as NYCHA plans to contest the ruling next week. But it's safe to say this was a big success for the tenants. In other legal news, the Supreme Court made one of its first decisions of the summer term. On Tuesday, April 17th, the United States Supreme Court ruled that a law subjecting non-citizens to deportation for crimes of violence is unconstitutionally vague. The law was thrown out on the grounds of what Justin Kag- Justice Kagan has referred to as a, quote, void for vagueness doctrine. And she wrote in delivering the ma- majority opinion that this, quote, guards against arbitrary or discriminatory law enforcement. The decision was tipped by President Trump's appointment, Justice Neil Gorsuch, who sided with the more liberal justices in a decision that surprised many. Not so surprisingly, the president was less than happy about the decision, and he took to Twitter. He espoused that the ruling was a public safety crisis. In other things that have upset President Trump this week, former FBI Director James Comey has begun a national book tour to gain publicity for his recently released memoir titled A Higher Loyalty. So far, the biggest takeaways from the book include referring to the president as morally unfit to serve as president, hoping that the president is served justice via the democratic process in 2020, and finally, defending his controversial decision regarding reopening the Clinton investigation only days before the 2016 election. Of his decision, Comey has said he was, quote, operating in a world where Hillary Clinton was going to beat Donald Trump. All of this has come into the limelight while Comey has enjoyed a particularly flashy stint in the news cycle over the last week, including high-profile interviews on ABC, NPR's Fresh Air, and the Late Night Circuit. But there has been speculation that such a public tour has tarnished Comey's carefully cultivated apolitical reputation, and even further, that it may have been unwise given the likelihood that he will be called to testify for the ongoing Mueller investigation. But as Comey himself has put it, he's just telling the truth. And finally, this week, we'd like to bring attention to one of the biggest blackouts in United States history that took place this week in Puerto Rico. On April 18th, nearly seven months after Puerto Rico's infrastructure was devastated by Hurricane Maria, yet another total blackout stripped the island of power. This blackout lasted for nearly 36 hours and affected hospitals, water pumping systems, banks, 
public transit, and even San Juan's airport. These widespread power outages have been consistently affecting Puerto Rico in the months since the hurricane and are now considered to be the biggest in United States history. The U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, has fallen under intense scrutiny for its handling of the recovery process on the island thus far. They've publicly stated that their work is far from over, and another 50 billion U.S. dollars should be sent to the island in aid. The sad news is that hurricane season is soon to start again on June, June 1st. FEMA administrators have warned that the island is far from prepared. Welcome back to Fighting Words. I'm your host, Ryan, and I'm here with Raven, and we're launching a new segment called Hashtag Real Talk, where we do a deep dive into a news story that you may not see very often in your feeds. La oh. As you may recall, last week we did kind of a similar deep dive into one of the biggest news stories right now, uh, Cambridge Analytica and Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress. This week, we're taking it off the Facebook feed, and we're talking about the intersectionality between politics and religion and we're calling this session Politics from the Pulpit. Now, about a year ago, The Atlantic published a piece called Breaking the Faith about religion and politics in America. Ironically, about the lack of religion in contemporary America. The article focuses on the increasing secularization of the American public as a lens through which to observe politics in Trump's America. Historically, religion has played a huge role in American politics. Religious debates tainted many national discussions, such as the infamous Scopes Monkey Trial of the early progressive era that debated the merits of evolution in the classroom. In addition, religious attendance has always remained high in the United States, but especially between the 1930s through the 1970s. However, according to the article, although many Americans today still do believe in some higher power, increasing numbers are rejecting organized religion. Today, 35% of millennials identify as non-religious. But does this matter? What are the implications of this wave of secularization? Well, the article goes into some of those details, and we're going to question them at the end. As America has grown more secular, several trends have been revealed. For example, overall, there is a lack of religious drive in today's activism, as opposed to the civil rights era, where you saw figures like Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. espouse religious and political ideologies. What effect does this have on modern protest? Perhaps we're going to find out in the age of Trump. Secular voters are also more likely to be discontent voters that crave revolutionary politics. Religious individuals who are more likely to be institutionalists, which means they believe in preserving and adapting the political and economic system that exists. Secular individuals are more likely to be insurrectionists, which means that they believe that the system is rotten to the core and radical change is needed. Despite the fact that in the past, religion has been a source of political conflict, the article argues that this increasing secularization has actually not eased political conflict, but rather has made American politics more polarized. With the lack of Americans attending church, we're actually seeing an increase in us versus them mentality and cutthroat environments. So then to turn to kind of some of the specific implications of this increasing secularization for Republican policy and thought, I decided to pull a quote from the article, which says, according to data assembled by the Public Religion Research Institute, the percentage of white Republicans with no religious affiliation has nearly tripled since 1990. This is truly a fascinating find, because without implying causation, 
it does highlight that both not attending religious services and faring worse in life correlate with a darker vision of America today. Further, evangelicals who don't regularly attend church become less hostile towards gays, but more hostile towards black people, Muslims, and Latinos, a stance familiar with many of the Republicans today. And other researchers have stepped into the conversation as well, and they have validated what the PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, has found. For example, at the University of Iowa, Benjamin Knoll has studied church attendance extensively over time. He found a correlation between declining church membership and an increase in anti-immigrant sentiment. Also, Kenneth Wald and Allison Calhoun-Brown partnered together to write a book called Religion and Politics in the United States. The book argues, quote, the most committed members of a church are more likely than those who are involved to let its message of universal love erode their prejudices. So overall, researchers both in academia and in the policy and think tank world are coming to the same conclusion that with less religion and less people going to religious services, you're seeing more extreme positions that are anti-immigrant, anti-gay, anti-black people. You're seeing more of those extreme positions. There's also implications for the democratic side of politics. For example, white Democrats who went to religious services at least once a week backed Secretary Clinton by 26 points in the Democratic primaries. However, white Democrats who rarely attended services backed Senator Sanders by 13 points in the primaries. So a divide between religious Democrats and non-religious Democrats in their political affiliation. Also, secularization has affected quote-unquote black politics as well. For example, Black Lives Matters, Black Lives Matter. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement is sometimes accused the church of sexism, homophobia, and complacency. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement has sometimes accused the black church of sexism, homophobia, and complacency in the face of racial injustice. This pull away from the church may, ha may have long-term effects on the success of the movement among older generations. I personally think it's too early to tell, and the article doesn't go into a lot of detail, but certainly in the coming years, as people are able to look more and more at, through a historical lens at the Black Lives Matter movement, we'll be able to see whether these presumptions are true. And then to jump on that point, but continue to speak about, you know, activism and the role that secularization plays in it, journalists have also speculated that where in the past, as you mentioned, movements like the Civil Rights Movement were propelled by the religious leaders who led them, like Dr. King, movements today lack the salience of religious unity to a political end. However, to the flip side of that argument, we're also seeing that without religion as a potential division within a movement, the movement may be able to gain wider breadth across what would have been religious divides. But you know, with, with all of this talk about you know, religion and politics, especially operating under this assumption that within the United States we value separation of church and state, I, I have a couple questions. Um, when do you think religion is okay in politics? And when is it not? So Raven, I've got a few questions now that we've kind of walked our listeners through the article. 
um, and kind of explain the different points and different perspectives, the effect of religion overall in America, the effect of religion on Republicans, the effect of um, religion on Democrats, the effect of religion on political movements such as Black Lives Matter. Is religion okay in politics? Is it, is it, is it not? Is it okay in certain situations? What are your thoughts overall? Well, it's a really complex question with a lot of layers. But from a couple perspectives, as someone who grew up somewhat religious, I do feel as though there are certain benefits to religiosity in our lawmakers. You know, historically, many moral codes have actually come out of religious texts, and it is those moral codes which are frequently used to write laws. Um, additionally, philosophy, which is the, the basis of most of our religion, um, is also inherently linked to law. And so it makes sense that those grounded in religion and philosophy should also be our lawmakers. Additionally, I think that, you know, getting religion into politics can also mean greater representation for religious minorities, meaning a more equitable America. The reason that people are so likely to vote along their demographics is because people see a candidate like them as more likely to vote in their best interest. So, for instance, uh, a, a Muslim woman living in New Jersey is more likely to vote for another Muslim candidate because they're more likely to represent them than, you know, a, a white man from Missouri, potentially, hypothetically. Um, I think this is, you know, just as true for religiosity as any other demographic. However, at the same time, the separation of church and state is naturally a vital and foundational ideal of our nation. So, you know, there's, I believe there's a tension here at the crossroads of equal religious representation in Congress and keeping religion out of lawmaking altogether. I completely agree with all of those sentiments. Um, I, too, believe that religion and politics can never really be separated from, another, from one another. Um, if you're looking at the relationship between philosophy and law or religion and philosophy and the connections there, or if you're just looking at what these people do as representatives in their weekends, in their off time, if they go home and pray, if they're going to church or a synagogue um, or a mosque on the weekends, what they do in their personal lives is up to them. Um, however, I also believe that religion is indeed another identity that a person can have, just like their sexuality or their race or their national origin. Um, and all different identities should be welcomed in government and should be welcomed not only in the United States Congress, but down the ticket as well. City council races, school boards, everywhere in between. Um, because the more voices that are welcomed at the table, the more the final policies will actually represent the pluralistic society that is the United States. Of course, that being said, um, there is always tension when religion and politics kind of butt heads, such as issues like school prayer, or whether um, statues that hold the Ten Commandments can sit in front of courthouses in um, Alabama. And those issues are always going to be complex. Um, that's kind of the fun of politics to some degree, and that's why we have courts to delineate clear lines for us, and sometimes those lines are clearer than other lines. Um, but I don't think eradicating religion from politics is ever going to happen because the two are so integrated, um, and that's a historical perspective that's still proving true today. I think that's a really great point. But since we are seeing, you know, statistically what almost looks like an eradication of politics, at least from the American public, that's something to pay attention to. Personally, I actually do think, you know, that political polarization is a side effect of declining religiosity, but I also think that the two are results of something bigger happening underlying in America overall, and that's increasing frustration. 
you know, we see this manifest in frustration with the government, frustration with the police, frustration with several societal institutions, and therefore frustration with our religious institutions as well. You know, that's going to manifest itself in decreasing church attendance. Yeah, I would, I completely agree with that. I think that the evidence that we've looked at, they reveal a steady correlation between polarization and increased radicalism in their policy preferences and the candidates that they're voting for at the voting booth. Um, but I also think it's very challenging to assign any causal mechanism between the two and whether it's correlation versus causation is a fair debate that's happening, I'm sure, in the scholarly literature. Um, but I would also argue that this decreasing religiosity, like you said, is indeed a sign of a greater social phenomenon. And what is that greater social phenomenon? That is the fact that Americans are participating um, not just believing less in these social institutions, because they're believing less in them as, whole, as a whole, they're trusting the government less, but they're also participating in social institutions less and less. Um, for example, Americans are joining book clubs less frequently. They're participating in barbecues and going to state fairs less frequently. And the famous line from Robert Putnam's book, um, Bowling Alone, is that we're bowling alone. We're not joining bowling leagues as frequently. Um, and because of this decline, what he calls declining social capital, um, the societal institutions as a whole, whether they be religious or secular, are weakening because people are just not participating en um, enough. And I think what we're finally seeing is this connection between declining social capital, people joining the institutions less, and we're finally being able to say, this is happening and these are the tangible effects. Um, of course, whether, how they interact with one another, um, whether radicalization makes someone less likely to go to church, or whether going to church is the thing that's radicalizing, that causal mechanism is of course complicated, and I think it probably goes both ways to some degree. Um, but the overall question is, is this a problem, declining membership? Is radicalization a problem? Um, how do we fix it? Is it a two-tiered solution? Is it we fix membership? Do we fix um, not just at religious institutions but social institutions overall? I don't know. So, Fighting Words listeners, if you've got a strong opinion, please do let us know. Do you think declining church membership is an issue? Do you think politics and religion should interact at all? If you've got strong feelings, please do let us know in the comments. And now for our weekly toast to the Trump White House. Recent firings include no one. But as us at the media, we're making some guesses and predictions. And our next prediction is that the administrator of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, will be the next to be fired. So stay tuned. Recent tweet targets include slippery James Comey, the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, the tax system, the state of California, and the sketch of the man who allegedly threatened Stormy Daniels. And always, to wrap up the podcast, we want to include Trump's current approval rating. According to Gallup, he stands at 39%. Cheers to the Trump White House. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Fighting Words. I'm your host, Ryan Trembauer. And I'm your other host, Raven Quesenberry. Make sure to check out our next episode in your feeds on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. If you haven't already, make sure to like, comment, share, and subscribe. And remember, stay engaged and question everything.